Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. When everything's on fire. Mark 9, 49, Jesus says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Once upon a time, everybody believed in God. Our ancestors believed in God or gods as effortlessly as they believed in the firm ground beneath their feet or the open expanse of sky above their head. It was just the world in which they lived. Faith in God was presumed. As the Greek poet Epimenides said, in him we live and move and have our being. A line of poetry later borrowed by the Apostle Paul. But that was before everything was on fire. That was before the two world wars, this great conflagration that swept across the world. That was before the skies over Auschwitz were darkened with human ash. That was before ominous mushroom clouds rose above Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That was before two columns of smoke could be seen ascending into the September sky over Manhattan. That was before venerable institutions were engulfed in flames of scandal. We now live in a time when everything is on fire and for various reasons we are seeing people increasingly losing their faith. Now if we frame, if we frame the phenomenon of people losing their faith because it's happening, it's happening, right? I think probably everybody here knows at least one person or a dozen people who used to somehow call themselves a Christian and believe and they no longer do. If we frame the phenomenon of the loss of faith in modernity in culture war terms, it only makes it worse. You know, somebody gets up and says, well, that's what you get for taking prayer out of school or something like that. Being angry with modern people for losing their faith is a bit like being angry at medieval people for dying of the plague. I mean, something happened in the Middle Ages that caused nearly a half of the population of Europe to die of a disease. And something has happened in modernity that has made it increasingly difficult for people to hold on to their faith. And no one foresaw this phenomenon of the loss of faith coming of age in the 20th century more clearly than Friedrich Nietzsche. Frederick Nietzsche, 1844 to 1900. He was a pastor's kid. Grew up in a Lutheran pastor's home. But of course, uh, Nietzsche's most known for being probably modernity's most famous atheist and also the most formidable critic of Christianity. 
1882, seven years before his own descent into madness, Frederick Nietzsche published his parable, The Madman. It's prescient. It's prophetic. In the parable of the madman that Nietzsche composes, a madman walks into a European village on a bright sunny morning, holding aloft a lantern and crying out, where is God? I'm seeking God. Where is God? Where is God? I will tell you. We have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained the earth from its sun? Where is it moving now? Where are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not strain as through infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? Gods too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. The villagers then continue to laugh at the madman and his wild assertions. And then the, the madman says, oh, I see. I've come too soon. My time is not yet. It is still on the way. And then he smashes the lantern and goes into the churches and sings a requiem for God. Whew. That is something. I think of Nietzsche as a kind of mad prophet. His conclusions are wrong, but his foresight was very perceptive. It's a prophecy of the 20th century. The madman's lantern smashed in Nietzsche's parable is kind of like the lantern kicked over in the barn by Mrs. O'Leary's cow that burned Chicago down. Nietzsche's Prophecy doesn't cause what happens, but it does foresee it very clearly. What was unthinkable, really, that, that masses of people would begin to turn away from faith in God, what seemed unthinkable in 1882 were the vast majority of European society called themselves Christians and attended church. What seemed unthinkable in 1882 became a legitimate question in the 60s. I have a Time magazine here. Maybe their most famous cover. From April 8th, 1966. Is God dead? I, I got this years and years ago. I keep it in my study as a reminder to me of the age in which I preach and pastor. I pastor and preach in an age where this is a question that's in currency. Is God dead? 
Back to Nietzsche. It's not insignificant that Nietzsche was a PK. PKs, pastor's kids, are acutely sensitive to hypocrisy. Pastor's kids are aware that there is often a great gulf between what people claim to believe and how they actually live. Nietzsche brings into current vocabulary the phrase God is dead or frame it as a question, is God dead? He's not the first to use that phrase. It has an older pedigree. But Nietzsche is not simply making some sort of brazen assertion. He's actually looking around with the keen eye of a philosopher and realizing that European society in the 1880s, though it continues to claim it believes in God, is moving further and further away from God and God is not really the center of society anymore. Now, Nietzsche is an atheist and he does think that it's time for the world to move on without God, but he, unlike the angry new atheists of the variety of Hitchens and Dawkins and Dennett and Harris, etc. He's, he's very nervous about it. He says it's a dangerous move because we've wiped away the horizon. There's no longer any up or down. We've unchained the earth from its sun. We're wandering through vast nothingness. Nietzsche's hope was for the ubermensch, the superman, the overman. He wanted humanity to rise up like Greek gods and through will to power achieve unattained greatness. Unfortunately, it turned out that Nietzsche's ubermensch was a Nazi. It was the Nazis who took Nietzsche most seriously and read his books, Twilight of the Idols, Beyond Good and Evil, Antichrist, as their canonical text and tried to live out his philosophy. Now, it's true. I'll say that Nietzsche didn't intend for what happened with the rise of Nazism and the Holocaust. He would not have necessarily been in favor of that. But I also want to say, dear, dear Nietzsche, what did you think was going to happen? With your dark fascination with violent will to power, how did you think it was going to end? Did you think it was going to end other than in death camps and a continent in ruins. Nietzsche's hope was the ubermensch, the overman, the superman. That didn't come to pass. His fear was the last man or the last men. The last man is an incurious, entertainment-addled utilitarian who aspires for nothing more than a little bit of sedated happiness. In 1880s, Nietzsche describes the last men as, as people who just sit around and they don't have any grand ambitions. They just sit around and say things like, we have invented happiness and blink. He's really describing the modern couch potato that doesn't have any grand ambitions that just sits around and just keeps the wolf of nihilism at bay through endless entertainment and sedation. See, that was Nietzsche's fear. That once we move away from the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, that we would be staring into the abyss and there would be nothing. 
and he's right. It was Nietzsche that gave us the lament, 2,000 years and no new God. Yeah, and no new God is coming. Jesus has cleared the field of all rivals and now we stand with the choice, Jesus or what? Jesus or nothing, Jesus or the abyss, Jesus or absolute emptiness. So where does this leave us now? The lantern has been smashed. The brazen assertion that God is dead is ringing in our ears and everything seems to be on fire. What shall we do? Is it inevitable that we follow the path foretold by Nietzsche that leads to the end of Christian faith? Or is there a way to take seriously what Nietzsche heralds and still believe? Nietzsche saw something real looming on the horizon of the 20th century, but is the madman right when he says, what after all are these churches now if they are not the tombs and sepulchers of God? Is that true? Or does the church still have a future as a living witness to the risen Christ? In recent years, we've seen believers, pastors, and well-known Christian leaders publicly lose their faith. This phenomenon is happening with increasing regularity. Does that mean we who still believe are simply whistling past the graveyard and stubbornly refusing our own inevitable loss of faith? Here's the big question. Is it possible to hold on to Christian faith in an age of unbelief? The answer is yes. Certainly contemporary Nietzsche's are announcing the impossibility of Christian faith, but there are also trustworthy guides who can say with Fyodor Dostoevsky, I believe in Christ and confess him not like some child. My Hosanna has passed through an enormous furnace of doubt. All right, I want to give you some perspective on the time in which we live. Since this is the only time in which you have lived, presumably, the only epoch, the only era, it can be a bit hard to gain perspective. I want to try to describe what the modern era is and how it came to be. By modern era, I don't mean iPhone 13. I mean, I mean the last 400 years. If you want to pick a date for the beginning of modernity, it's somewhat arbitrary, but here's my choice, and I think it's as good as any. I think it's actually pretty good. I would say it's 1637, with the publication of Discourse of Method by Rene Descartes. Rene Descartes, French philosopher, Catholic, Christian, believer, but he wants to find what we call epistemological bedrock. He wants to find what he can just actually stand on and know is certain. And he realizes, you know, you can doubt almost everything. You can believe a lot, but you can doubt everything you believe. And so he wants to know something for sure. And so he starts thinking about it. Well, I could doubt that. I could doubt that. I could doubt that. I could doubt that. I could doubt. And as he's doing that, he goes, wait a minute. I'm thinking, aren't I? So I can't doubt that. Even in doubting, I'm thinking, cogito, ergo, sum. I think, therefore I am. And this becomes essentially the foundation that modernity and empiricism 
is built upon. There's problems with it. I'm not going to go into all that. It is a foundation that can adequately lead to understanding our world in such a way as you can produce an iPhone 13 and everything else. But the problem is, is it becomes an assumption that everything that can be known and experienced in the phenomenon of being is what you can ascertain through the five physical senses. That everything that you know has to be verified by some sort of application or analysis through the five physical senses and anything else that you claim to know apart from that is to be held suspect. I have no quibble at all, not a bit, with the claims of science except one. I mean, I don't know of any major scientific theory that's any threat to my Christian faith at all. Have no problem with it. The only thing I'd push back on is I would say this. When science, through the method of empiricism, has said everything they can say about the phenomenon of being, they still have not said it all. There's more, there's more to our experience of reality than what can be known through empiricism. There is, my friends, the reality of revelation. And revelation is made not to the mind, not to the reason, not to the senses, but to the heart. Call this what you will. This, the heart, the heart. Jesus says, well, who do people say that I am? Well, say you're. Isaiah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's who they say you are. I mean, that was then. Today they say, they say you're a, a historical figure. That was a good teacher. Okay. But who do you say that I am? The society says this. Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the one. You're the son of the living God. You're the one sent from God. And Jesus said, you're blessed, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not, what's the word? Reveal this to you. You didn't figure this out. You weren't taught this. You didn't see it in a microscope or a telescope. It was revealed to you by my father in heaven. And that's what I'll build on. That's the foundation right there. The revelation to the heart. And that's where Christian faith has its foundation, that it's been revealed to you. November 9th, 1974, Jesus was revealed to me. I can't prove it, and I'm not going to try. I will bear witness to it, and you can decide what you want to believe or not. But Jesus was revealed to a 15-year-old, long-haired, Zeppelin-freak kid in Savannah. And that's the foundation for my faith, and that's never changed. But in modernity, we got kicked up inside our head. Descartes kicked us all the way up in the attic with a bunch of old dusty National Geographic magazines. And we're all up inside our head as the sole arbiter of truth. And we've been convinced that we cannot claim to believe something we can't prove in the terms of empiricism, but that's a rigged game. You're always going to lose that game. You don't have to prove it. 
You bear witness to it. Christianity is not a confession, not, not an explanation. It's a confession. We will explain what we can, but we will always confess more than we can explain. I confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, the thing is, Descartes means well. He certainly he wasn't an unbeliever. He, in fact, he said in the preface to his publisher that one of the things he wanted to try to do in Discourse of Method was to prove the existence of God, which is folly to begin with. That isn't how you go about that. What we need is another witness. We need to hear from Descartes' contemporary, lived at the same time, and intellectual equal. Blaise Pascal. We use the word genius too freely. But if you're ever going to use the word, Blaise Pascal was a genius, a mathematical genius, one of the greatest mathematical minds the world has ever known. You certainly cannot accuse Blaise Pascal of being opposed to reason, but Blaise Pascal also had had an experience when he was 31 years old that he called the Night of Fire. November 23rd, 1654. And he tries to explain it, but it's one of those mystical experiences that you know you can't really explain. But he encounters the God revealed in Christ. And it changes his life. It is Blaise Pascal in his little book called Pensee, which is just a collection of his thoughts, mostly spiritual thoughts, that he gives us this wonderful, brilliant little axiom. The heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. That's worth memorizing. The heart has its reasons of which reason. Don't you know that's true? The heart has its reasons. See, we need to come down out of always living upstairs in the attic. Come down into the living room where the fire is already in the heart and sit with Jesus there. The heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. The, the entire quote goes like this. The heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. We know this in countless ways. It is the heart which perceives God and not the reason. This is what faith is. God perceived by the heart, not by reason. But in modernity, you have been told that what you perceive by the heart is illegitimate. I'm here to tell you, you can tell modernity to knock it off, that it's arrogant in its assertion that all that can be known has to be known here and that what you know here is illegitimate. That's a lie. The heart does have its reasons of which reason knows nothing. Now, the poets need to be heard. The poets are not dealing with empiricism. They are actually probably often responding to revelation. The poets are more reliable oracles of revelation than theologians. This is, this is why so much of the Bible is poetry. Because the poetic and the prophetic are related. Did, did you know a lot of your Bible's poetry? And the poets approach what they do and what they have to say, not by, certainly not by empiricism and not by intellect, but by revelation in their heart. And then they try to find words 
to communicate that which is ineffable almost, unspeakable. My favorite poet probably is T.S. Eliot, a believer. His most famous poem probably is Four Quartets, which is actually four poems. In Four Quartets, T.S. Eliot says, we only live, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. We only live, only suspire. Suspire means to breathe. But he didn't say breathe because he wants it to rhyme with fire. <laughs> we only live, only suspire, consumed by fire or fire. In other words, you're going to be consumed by fire. But there's more than one kind. Yeah, we live in an age when everything's on fire. I'm well aware of that. I understand that. But I also want to say, yeah, we only live, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. Because as the book of Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. And I don't fear that fire. I mean, I may, but I'm still going to willingly seek to enter into that fire because the only thing that's consumed in the consuming fire that is our God is that which is wood, hay, and stubble, and it needs to be consumed anyway. That which is gold, silver, and precious stones is only refined in that fire. The turning point in Moses' life came when he encountered God in the burning bush. You know his story, the basic contours. Moses, Jewish, condemned, Nile, rescued, raised as a prince in Pharaoh's courts, comes of age, becomes kind of an activist, employing violent means to rescue Israel from their bondage in Egypt, and it all goes disastrously wrong. And he becomes a failure working for his father-in-law. Way out in the boonies, out in the backside of the desert. In those wilderness years, working for his father-in-law in the backside of the desert, Moses is a picture of the multitude of people. The multitude of lonely people who lost their ideals 35 years ago and can now only put a touch of a smile over a mask of pain. No doubt Moses feels like his life has come to the end. He had grand ambitions. It all went disastrously wrong. And now he's out in the wilderness. The end. That's what he thinks. But strangely enough, when we're talking about engaging with God, the end is often the beginning. The desert is doing its work on Moses, it's scouring away that which needed to depart. So it is an end. There is, a, there is a whole aspect of Moses' life that's coming to an end, but it's not the end. The end becomes the beginning. And as he reaches the end, he doesn't know there's anything beyond that. He just knows he's at the end, but one day at the end, he's in the backside of the wilderness and he sees a bush that's on fire. 
that could be explained except that the bush is not burned up. The bush is on fire. The fire is in the bush. The bush and the fire are there together. But somehow the bush remains green, living and verdant. It doesn't turn to ash and disappear. So Moses says, I must turn aside and look at this great sight. Why the bush is not burned up. And that's where Moses' real life begins. Everything that really matters about Moses, everything that causes his name to be a name that we know today begins there at the burning bush. So after 25 years of ministry, we had a big celebration here and Perry and I got on a plane and we traveled and flew from Kansas City to New York to Tel Aviv to Alat. And the next morning we got up and we walked across the border into Egypt where we'd hired a guide by the name of Mina, a Greek Orthodox charismatic young man. Charismatic, I mean, you know, like he's Greek Orthodox and speaks in tongues. That's what I mean by that. And he was going to be our guide, but we had to have a driver. So we had Ahmed the Bedouin with his Toyota Land Cruiser is going to take us through the desert so I can keep my appointment with God on Mount Sinai. But neither one would go without the, a security guard. So we had Mohammed from Cairo, who you see there. There they are. You can tell who the better one is. Mina is the one on the end in the white shirt. Mohammed, the security guard, is there in the suit with an Uzi under his suit. <laughs> and there's a BZ from 15 years ago. We get in the land cruiser. There are roads that'll take us to where we want to go, but they were eschewed by Ahmed the Bedouin. And so we went for this wild ride through the wilderness. Finally, uh, after dark, we arrive at St. Catherine's Monastery. Can't really see much. It's dark. We get into a guest house there. They tell us that, well, you know, sunrise is 6 a.m. It takes you about four hours to climb Mount Sinai. So we just got a little snatch of sleep and we're up at two in the morning and we head up Mount Sinai. It's 8,000 feet high. It only took us two hours. We were fit. Problem is we got there two hours too early. And it was cold. It was right at freezing. And we just sat there and we froze on the top of Mount Sinai. There's a little chapel up there. I sat down, leaned against the chapel, and just my teeth chattered and <laughs> waited for sunrise. But sunrise came. And I kept my appointment with God. I talked with God. God talked a little bit with me. I'm always more talkative than God is. I know we all find that frustrating. But God did talk. And now it's time to go, not just down the mountain, but back to, back to an, another season of ministry. And I'm making my way down the mountain, Perry and I are coming down the mountain. And for the first time, we see St. Catherine's Monastery in the daylight. This is the oldest site of continuous Christian worship in the world. The place was built in 330. I mean, only 330. 
And prayer has been conducted, that prayer and worship, five times a day for almost 17 centuries. I wanted to be a part of that. And so Perry and I, of course, sort of, you know, they, they were only going to admit Greek Orthodox. And they asking us if we're Orthodox. And you just keep crossing yourself in an Orthodox style. It's like a gang sign, you know. And so finally we got in. It was, it was in Greek, you know, so we couldn't really. Under, but it just, just to be in a place where they've been worshiping nonstop for 17 centuries. Afterwards, a kindly Orthodox monk, a Greek Orthodox monk, took us on a little tour. And there's much to see there in this 17th century old monastery, St. Catherine's. They showed us the Christ Pantocrator, the oldest icon in the world. They have the oldest library in the world, a lot of remarkable things to see. And then at the very end of our time there, they, the, the, the monk takes us out into a courtyard and just sort of unironically, dispassionately, points to a bush and goes, oh, that's the burning bush. That's why we built the monastery here, because this is the site of the burning bush at the foot of Mount Sinai. That's the burning bush. I'm like, really? I didn't say that, but that's, you know, I'm thinking, but my, definitely my empirical mind was kicking in. Are you, are you sure? I mean, how, how would you know? I mean, we're talking, that was a long time ago. So the, the monk said, that's the burning bush, but is it the burning bush? Of course it is. The holy bramble in the courtyard of St. Catherine's Monastery is the burning bush, just like the giant sycamore tree in my backyard is the burning bush. What makes the burning bush the burning bush is not the bush, but the awakening of Moses or me or you. Elizabeth Barrett Browning says it better in poetry than I can in prose. Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round and pluck blackberries. In a secular age, when everything is on fire, we may ask, where is God? I understand the impulse and the nature of the question, but the mystic may very well answer, where isn't God? Is everything on fire with that which threatens to consume the sacred, or is the deeper truth that everything is on fire with the glory of God? Certainly our world seems aflame with destructive forces, but the wise poet knows that's not the whole story. She has seen beyond the veil and hears and bears witness that earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush is afire with God. Every bush, every tree, every bird, every blade of grass, every grain of sand, and the very stars themselves are all on fire with the glory of God. But in our hurry to be or do something, we rush past it all and miss the love of God smiling through all things. This creates the poverty of soul that we often experience as boredom. We fail to notice the glory that is flashing all around us. When Moses awakened to the glory, he removed his shoes. 
The burning bush was indeed a miracle, but the miracle wasn't so much in the bush as it was in Moses. At midlife, after experiencing deep loss, Moses suddenly awakened to wonder and turned aside to behold the glory of God in a simple desert bush. And having turned aside, Moses finally glimpsed the shining beauty that is in all of creation. The problem that plagues the sons and daughters of modernity is that we so rarely turn aside. We're always on our way somewhere else. We so rarely inhabit the moment fully. We're distracted. We're in a hurry. We rush about. We're anxious. We're angry. We're empty. This is Egypt. This is Babylon. This is America. This is a disenchanted age devoid of glory. This is a world set on fire from the lamp of a madman declaring the death of God. This is life made unlivable and God made unknowable. We need a desert, a wilderness, a Sinai, where our soul can grow still and then expand. And we don't need Mina, Ahmed, and Muhammad to take us there. We can find our way to holy ground, a park, a library, a quiet room, an empty cathedral, a walk in the woods will do. It's possible to enter the mystical wilderness within. Learn to sit in some kind of wilderness until something catches fire. Take off your shoes and begin to talk to God as if God is there, as if God is near, as if God hears, as if God cares, because it's all true. Amen. Stand up with me. Christianity is a received faith. It's been passed on from generation to generation. Join with me now in confessing our received faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. So in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven.